Good evening. My name is Simon Stacey and on behalf of the Royal Aeronautical Society uh, and the Society's Rotorcraft Specialist Group, I'd like to welcome you to the 2020 Alan Bristow Memorial Lecture. We are, of course, delivering this year's lecture under unusual circumstances and the Society would like to extend its best wishes to you and your families. It's gratifying to note uh, that whilst we're not gathered at Hamilton Place this year, the opportunity that this webinar gives is for us to reach out to a much wider audience uh, and we welcome you all. Um, we have an excellent speaker this evening presenting a fascinating topic, so I'll be brief. Before tonight's speaker, I must run through some housekeeping announcements. Uh, today's webinar is being videoed and audio recorded. Uh, these files will be shared with all attendees three days after the webinar through an email and can be accessed free of charge. Um, all attendees will also receive a certificate of attendance along with the video. Uh, this is important for those of us who are worrying about continuous professional development. Uh, if nothing more, you can add it to your lockdown scrapbook. We invite your comments and questions. You will find a questions tab in the GoToWebinar platform box on your screen. That should be down the bottom of that GoToWebinar platform box. If you have questions during the presentations, type your question in and we will answer as many of those questions as we, as we can at the end of the webinar. We may not be able to answer them all, depending on how many we get. All attendees are muted during the proceedings. So again, if you wish to ask questions, go via that questions tab in the GoToWebinar platform box. To the running order then, the presentation will last approximately 45 minutes, after which we will go into the question and answer session. The webinar will end at 7 p.m. And now to introduce you then to this evening's uh, speaker, Lee Evans, senior test pilot of Leonardo Helicopters. Lee left the Royal Navy in 2018 after a varied 28 year career as a marine engineer technician, ships diver and helicopter pilot. During that time, he was involved in a broad spectrum of operations and Lee will highlight these briefly in his talk. Most notably for tonight, Lee spent two seasons flying from HMS Endurance in Antarctica. Lee went on to qualify as an EASA Class 1 test pilot at Empire Test Pilot School in 2009, serving on the Rotary Wing Test and Evaluation Squadron for Lynx Mark 9A, Wildcat and Merlin. He's been a flying instructor on eight different helicopter types and a flight test tutor for both Empire Test Pilot School <coughs> and the US Naval Test Pilot School. Lee's a senior test pilot at Leonardo Helicopters and we'll touch briefly on the flying he's doing today. <coughs> so now on to tonight's lecture. We'll hear an incredible aviation story about operating Lynx helicopters to a Royal Navy icebreaker in the harshest environment on our planet. Using incredible video footage and photographs from his time as Fleet Air on pilot on board, HMS Endurance, Lee will highlight the challenges of operating helicopters in Antarctica in the harshest environment on Earth. He will talk about the history of Antarctic helicopter aviation, and how shipborne helicopters from HMS Endurance provided essential support for several branches of UK government. He will also talk about what it was like to be filming pilot for the BBC natural history blockbuster Planet Earth and how the crews had to overcome unpredictable winds, snow, ice mountains, wildlife, icebergs and rough seas on a daily basis. On that I shall hand you over to Lee. Lee it's over to you. Okay, thank you, Simon, for that kind introduction. Uh, good evening, the Royal Aeronautical Society members and all those of you who have tuned in from around the UK and further afield. Uh, it's a great honour to be able to give this lecture uh, on Lynx operations in Antarctica, and especially as it's the uh, Sir Alan Bristow uh, named lecture. Uh, 
He was a amazing pioneer of the helicopter world and aviation world. And I'm currently in the middle of reading his book at the moment. Uh, and it's really worth uh, reading, uh, especially he joined the Navy at 16, just like I did, uh, although he was sunk on his first two ships uh, during World War II. He was the first ever helicopter Westlands uh, at Westlands test pilot uh, working under Harold Penrose. Uh, very different times, though. Three of his colleagues were killed in the first few years that he was a test pilot there. Uh, and he even had six engine failures in one day, uh, four of them resulting in engine off landings into a field somewhere in Somerset. Hopefully that's not going to happen to me. And he also got sacked after a couple of years of working there for punching the uh, a sales manager in the face uh, and then went on to obviously be very successful in a business and political career. So I uh, recommend this book highly. Uh, moving on to, uh, like Simon said, I was a uh, 28 years in the Navy. Uh, currently, uh, have a great job as a Leonardo test pilot working on Lynx programs. If you can see my mouse, I'm going to use my mouse a lot. So you'll see my mouse moving as a, uh, a lockdown pointer. Uh, so Super Lynx programs uh, on uh, civilian Merlin programs, including the Norwegian search and rescue helicopter. Uh, Merlin programs for the military and Wildcats helicopter programs, including uh, firing of weapons. Uh, I was lucky enough to be one of the first pilots to fire the Royal Navy's newest uh, missile last week, the uh, Martlet uh, LMM missile. Before that, I was an instructor at US Navy Test Pilot School at Pax River in Southern Maryland, teaching primarily on the uh, Lakota aircraft in the top left there and the Black Hawk. But I was very lucky enough to get to fly lots of aircraft that the Americans have in their inventory, including the F-18, the Sea Stallion, the Cobra, and uh, the V-22 Osprey. Uh, I did my test pilot course in 2009, then did four years as a test pilot in the military, working on uh, the Lynx 9 Alpha for uh, going for Afghanistan. Uh, Merlin programs for the Merlin Mark II. Uh, upgrade program and Wildcat programs, including quite a lot of time back at sea doing uh, dynamic interface and ship helicopter operating testing. Before that, I was an instructor flying the uh, Lynx Mark 8 and Mark 3. Uh, and I'm, this is leading on to basically a lot of my time at sea was in very hot places, uh, operating in the northern Arabian Gulf off the coast of Kuwait, Iraq and Iran in 2003 and 2004. Uh, basically against the sort of asymmetric and pirate threats, looking after the oil for the Food for Oil program. So very hot and humid conditions. This shows the outside air temperature gauge of over 50, 55 degrees C, uh, taking off uh, up towards the uh, Shat al-Arab. So very hot and humid conditions. And landing at Basra Palace, it was even so hot that it melted the tarmac. Uh, so as you can imagine, I was getting very used to operating uh, in hot climates. I spent a lot of time in the West Indies as well. Uh, so when I got a phone call in 2005 uh, to say that the uh, the pilot on board HMS Endurance had had his eye socket broken in Peru playing rugby, and would I like to replace him? Uh, I thought for about 30 seconds and obviously said yes. Uh, and that was the start of the adventure. So all of a sudden, I'd come from these very hot conditions to then operating in the coldest, uh, windiest, driest, most harsh place on Earth. You know, Antarctica is absolutely huge. Uh, most of it's a desert. 
is this bit here up at 10,000 feet. And a lot of the operations I'm going to be talking about, about are here in the Antarctic Peninsula, Peninsula area uh, and the Weddell Sea. Just to show the scale of the place, this is the whole of Europe fitted into Antarctica. And you can see that the whole of the UK is just about as big as this Antarctic Peninsula and the whole of the USA uh, fits easily inside of it. So I'm going to be talking uh, about the history a little bit, about the ship itself, the aircraft, the roles that we did, uh, the environment and the challenges and uh, the future of uh, Antarctic helicopter operations. So moving on to the history. Uh, the first Endurance didn't, wasn't around for very long, uh, but had an amazing story with Sir Ernest Shackleton as the captain. And they were going to do the uh, Trans-Antarctic Crossing. But it was an ill-fated journey, and the, air, the uh, ship only lasted till 1915. Uh, they were basically stuck. They left South Georgia here uh, and were basically stuck on the ice for two Christmases on a ship that was uh, being crushed by the ice slowly and, uh, and sank at the end of uh, 1915. Uh, 27 men. They then waited on the ice uh, in upturned boats before then rowing to Elephant Island uh, with nobody on a very inhospitable island that's really never been visited uh, before then. Before then realizing that the winter of uh, 1916 was coming. So six people, including Sir Ernest Shackleton, sailed for three weeks to South Georgia uh, to then try and get hold of some Norwegian whalers so they could then try and save the rest of the 21 men who were living in these upturned boats. That didn't happen for another five months because of the sea ice. So in all, they were there for pretty much two years. Nobody died. An amazing story of adventure and leadership that is definitely a uh, recommended uh, book to read. Uh, this is where they landed in uh, South Georgia. And they then had to cross the mountains. Uh, and it took 36 hours of no maps to try and get to Stromness, which was this Norwegian whaling station. And that's them taking uh, photos as they went across. So uh, an amazing story. Uh, and there's the book title. So going on to uh, the Royal Navy and aviation in Antarctica, HMS Protector was the first ship to have helicopters on with the Westland Whirlwind. Uh, then there was the uh, Red Plum, which was another HMS Endurance uh, with the Wasp on board. And she was actually the only ship in the Southern Hemisphere when, uh, when Argentina attacked uh, South Georgia and the Southern Thule Islands and the Falkland Islands. So there's an amazing book called Beyond Endurance, which is about that journey, which is a great book to read as well. Uh, there's the, uh, the Wasp itself. Uh, which is obviously quite a small single engine aircraft to be operating in Antarctica with uh, limited power and tail rotor authority. So it must have been highly challenging operating that from the back of a ship in those conditions. So on to the uh, latest HMS Endurance. She was an ex-Norwegian uh, polar cruise ship that was converted to a Royal Navy ship uh, in around 1991. 6,200 tons, crew about 125, which surged to over 200 with all the scientists on board. She only did 15 knots max, which was a little bit of a worry when you've got to travel nearly 9,000 miles to Antarctica. Uh, 
two Lynx helicopters, lots of survey boats on the a multi-beam sonar, which I'll talk about more. And she was a class one icebreaker as well. When it's called an icebreaker, but she actually had an ice knife. So on the front, she had this big ice knife, which was pretty sharp. And she used to ride up onto the ice. Uh, you can see in the bottom left here and uh, and then use her weights to then cut through the ice. And this is a photo of her going through the ice. In reality, uh, here the ship actually got sunk, sorry, stuck uh, in the ice and had to turn around because the ice got a little bit too thick. Uh, so we had to go all the way around this huge ice flow. The back of the ship was all converted. So it had a hangar. So two helicopters fitted into here. So they had to have the rotor blades folded and the tail folded so they would both fit into the hangar. And this is the uh, flight deck. So a single spot ship, but for two helicopters, which has its challenges uh, when, you, when you're when you both airborne and only one can land on at a time. And then it takes about 20 minutes to put the other one away. Onto the aircraft itself. So basically the uh, Western Lynx, it was modified as an ice variant, which didn't mean very much really. It was painted red, had a picture of a penguin on the side and uh, the bottom of it was made pretty clean so we could land in the snow. So you can see underneath the aerials, a lot of them had been moved to the tail. So two gem engines, uh, British Experimental Rotor Blade Project uh, rotor blades uh, and a conventional tail rotor, a rigid rotor head, so made a very maneuverable and basically the same configuration of the aircraft that still holds the world speed record for a conventional helicopter. And you can see why here that the aircraft had to have the aerials removed from the bottom uh, of the of the helicopter inside uh, you can see pretty old technology very different to the wildcat that i fly now which is the latest generation we've got a radar so we can find the ship no vor no ils uh, no other navigation aids uh, including tacan standalone gps but there's not the greatest gps signal down there and a doppler tans navigation unit uh, so uh, quite uh, an old way of navigating, uh, even in the uh, 21st century. So we even had to get out uh, a map, uh, which generally a lot of crews don't use nowadays, as we all have moving maps and tablets and things. So here you can see a map with lines on uh, with a standalone GPS. So the flight itself was part of the ship's crew. We were embedded into the ship, uh, two pilots, two observers. We would fly as a crew. Uh, with a pilot in the right-hand seat, uh, either could be aircraft commander, and then you'd have technicians, mechanics, air traffic controller, survival equipment specialist, and a photographer. And a lot of people were dual trained as well, so they could be search and rescue swimmers. Uh, so uh, very tight-knit, sort of highly trained crew. Uh, it doesn't really look it here. We're in the middle of a beard growing competition. Uh, and I think we've even got a pirate lookalike. So putting this helicopter out, it was pushed out in the morning. You know, it was spread, the tail was spread, and then the aircraft would take off, and then the other the same would happen to the other aircraft. So there's the uh, the tail fold mechanism with the uh, engineers working. Very picturesque place, but obviously very cold to be working outside a lot. And then that's just about to launch the helicopter with the other helicopter in the background. So the journey itself, we would leave Portsmouth in around September, and it would take six weeks to get all the way down to sort of Antarctica at 10 to 12 knots. We'd do lots of training on the way. It'd obviously be very hot on the way. 
we'd go to Madeira, we'd go to somewhere in Brazil like Rio, uh, we sometimes go to Ush, uh, to Uruguay or Argentina, basically resupply at the Falklands, and then we would do sort of five, two, three, four week trips down to the ice, back again to resupply with lots of equipment and scientists. Uh, and then either go back via the west coast of South America through the Panama Canal or back via South Africa uh, and then all the way back home in spring the next year. So we would mainly operate, as I said earlier, on the uh, Antarctic Peninsula. And these are all British Antarctic survey bases that we would sort of help resupply. So we would be operating the Falkland Islands, South Georgia, uh, and this huge area of the Antarctic Peninsula and this Halley Ice Station as well. So this is a typical, uh, you know, lines of where we would go. So from the Falklands, maybe spend sort of three weeks in South Georgia, go to the Southern uh, Sandwich Islands, Southern Thule Islands, uh, South Orkney Islands, and then onto the peninsula. Um, we would generally spend sort of two or three weeks in one place doing lots of much work as possible and then go back. So long days, lots of flying uh, and then do as much science as possible and then go back to the Falklands or to Punta Arenas or Ushuaia uh, to resupply. And this is Patagonia here with the Straits of Magellan uh, and the Beagle Channel. So South Georgia itself uh, was the first place I went to. Uh, on my first work period, uh, an incredible island where Sir Ernest Shackleton actually died uh, some years later of natural causes, and that's where he's buried. Uh, it's about 75 miles long from top to bottom. This is the first day I was flying there, taken from the helicopter, so you can see the mountains just come straight from the sea uh, up to 12,000 feet, uh, and these are the huge glaciers. There was lots of whaling stations on there and the area still suffers uh, from that. So uh, up until the sort of 60s that there was uh, large whaling stations, uh, a lot of Norwegian whaling stations. And this graphic image is, shows, you know, what it would have been like in the sea around there. And the whales are still pretty decimated uh, around the area. And hopefully, you know, there's a lot of stuff being done to try and get them back. Uh, this just shows, you know, the size of some of the ice, icebergs that are coming off some of the huge uh, ice flows. So this is like a 40, 50 mile long iceberg uh, that, you know, spends possibly years drifting around, uh, getting smaller. Uh, that is obviously adding to climate change. Uh, Halley Ice Station. Uh, I never actually got to go there, but uh, uh, I have some photos just to show how amazing it is. And generally, it was every other year that Halley Ice Station was resupplied. But it looks like something out of the thing. Uh, so this is on the ice shelf. It can move with the ice flows, which it has to do. Uh, and pretty spectacular. And uh, obviously showing the Aurora uh, Australis. Okay, so uh, Rothera Research Station is one of the biggest or the biggest British Antarctic Survey base, and they have actually their own airfield as well, and up to sort of two or 300 people, uh, scientists there in the summer. Um, so we would support the Foreign Commonwealth Office, uh, the British Antarctic Survey, the Hydrographic Office, the BBC, uh, the British Schools Exploring Society, and we would do lots of search and rescue as well. So the Antarctic Treaty 
this is basically what the Foreign Commonwealth Office would, we would police and help police it down there. So nobody owns Antarctica from 66 degrees south, uh, but everyone has territorial claims on it, uh, including ourselves. So you can see ourselves, Chile and Argentina, all try and claim if the Antarctic Treaty was to break down this sort of significant area of the Antarctic Peninsula. Uh, and we would visit lots of different bases, uh, maybe up to 20 bases uh, from all the different nations and just making sure there's no weapons there, uh, all the waste is being disposed of properly and that they're doing science as well. Uh, it's all in the name of science uh, within the Antarctic Treaty. Uh, and obviously everyone seems to put their own flag up on their own little bit, what they think maybe there's of Antarctica. Uh, for the British Antarctic Survey, we would do lots of load lifting. So sometimes we'd load lift forward and aft at the same time, taking lots of science equipment and personnel to uh, do their science, sometimes leave them there for a whole year. Uh, so lots of uh, tents and equipment uh, that they could live on the uh, ice for, for possibly up to a year. That's a picture from the bridge of us doing load lifting with the observer in the back, so me in the front right, and uh, obviously keeping an eye on the load in the uh, hanging from the aircraft. That's us up at 6,000 feet, uh, resupplying or basically building a base that was going to drill an ice core 3,000 foot through Mount Haddington, uh, looking at climate change and uh, all sorts of different uh, equipment that we would take up there, including obviously lots of wood to build these uh, bases. And a picture of a scientist, we would drop off scientists. We were very lucky to have the leading scientists in the world with us and we would land on, shut down, get out and uh, go and do science with them, which was amazing. Then take them to the next spot. Uh, we would take all the skidoos and motorbikes and quads. Obviously we weren't supposed to, uh, we, we landed on here, uh, had lunch and had a little go of the uh, quads. Uh, and I think they were a little bit miffed that they only had half the fuel they were expecting when uh, when they actually arrived. Okay, for the UK Hydrographic Office, uh, we would do a lot of work for them surveying. Uh, we would have a multi-beam sonar on the uh, ship itself, which was a very modern one uh, that produced incredible images. And it obviously depended on the depth of the sea as to the uh, width of the uh, swath that could be recorded. Uh, and the ship would sort of drive a GPS trace up and down, up and down, and uh, basically take an image of the seabed below. And here you can see an underwater volcano, which they found. So find something and then take a lot of images over the top of it and then continue on. We would do aerial photography as well. We had specialist Leica and Zeiss cameras fitted to the side of the aircraft. This would produce overlapping images that would produce a stereographic image. That was a 3D image. We'd have to go up to 10,000 feet uh, and take these photos along coastlines to give a very accurate image. And we could even do wildlife surveys with it. So that's us up at 10,000 feet taking images uh, over the Falkland Islands. Uh, we would also drop off 3D differential GPS geodetic teams, three or four different places, tops of mountains. We would conduct photography. Uh, the boats would go out with divers and do tidal data. The ship would be taking uh, 
its images from its multi-beam sonar that would all be put together to put an incredible an incredibly accurate image together but you know why bother surveying down there you know a lot of people think it's pretty isolated and it is but there are a lot of cruise ships going down there now so you can see that you know this is deception island an incredible island a caldera uh it's got geothermal pools in that everyone wants to go and uh swim in uh but it's very dangerous this is actually us flying towards deception island you see there's a very small gap called neptune's bellows through here and when we were there, there was ships that hit rocks as they went through and took on water. So we would provide search and rescue for them. Uh, so that was a vital role and a vital role by the hydrographic office providing these uh, maps. And we would basically draw a motorway all the way around all the areas where the cruise ships wanted to go. So they could all keep away from each other. So they pretended they were in splendid isolation. Uh, and we would basically make a motorway of, of a safe passage. This just shows a little video that shows uh, how dangerous it is and what's lurking underneath the water. So we're just flying through some of that motorway, that safe passage of motorway that was uh, has been taken by the uh, multi-beam sonar and then datumed by the rest of the data. You see these big red spikes, uh, which are obviously very close to the surface. That would be very dangerous, uh, which they may not be able to see or may not be charted. And then you'll see where the edge of the glaciers are, uh, where it gets very deep and smooth underneath as well. If it looks like the pilot's not very good flying this, that's because they asked me to do it and thought I might be qualified to uh, fly this around the simulation. And here you can see the really smooth bottom of the glacier. And the edge of the glacier here. Okay. Uh, Working for the BBC, uh, was uh, I was very lucky to be down there while they were filming Planet Earth and Earth and uh, Blue Planet. Uh, we had the, one of the first ever gyro-stabilized cameras fitted to the side of the aircraft. Uh, and that was fitted by a company called Wildcat Films. And they had an amazing cameraman who come down uh, and operated the camera and a BBC producer. And we were lucky enough to go off and get to film all the footage uh, for uh, Planet Earth. And we also got to film each other uh, a lot as well, which was great because they kindly, Wildcat Films kindly put a video. Uh, okay, so icing was obviously a huge problem. So we would have uh, rime ice on the aircraft. It increases the weight of the aircraft, vibration of the aircraft. So uh, it would be. It would be a huge problem having uh, ice on the aircraft, including in, uh, increasing the vibration and weight. So this just shows the front of the aircraft after a day out uh, flying and like an inch thick uh, layer of ice on the front of the aircraft. 
uh, and you can see the visibility and just the, it was very moist and cold. And that's when the ice would build up on the aircraft and it was pretty dangerous conditions. Sometimes not normally known as icing conditions because the visibility is actually quite good here. Uh, but because it was so moist, the ice would stick to the aircraft. You have to be really careful. Uh, a lot of recirculating snow. So uh, again, isn't very good for the engines uh, operating in this environment uh, and visibility. Operating very high up at 10, 12,000 feet on the edge of sort of the normal sort of human limits without oxygen uh, was uh, interesting operating that high. Uh, lots of nice pictures of clouds now, but they look very nice. But uh, lenticular clouds, very beautiful, uh, amazing cloud formations, but they would show the onset of uh, standing waves. So uh, very dangerous, very turbulent conditions uh, that we were operating in. And here's us operating up at, you know, in the lee side of a 12,000 foot mountain, taking photos in very turbulent air. Uh, and this just highlights it. This is a wasp, obviously, a long time before I was there. That crashed, you know, just, just with uh, the wind that was uh, changing direction and they ran out of power and, uh, and crashed on a beach with Sir Rex Hunt, who was the governor of the Falkland Islands in uh, 1981, 1982. Uh, and the ship itself didn't really have much of a bilge keel or stabilizers because it was an icebreaker. Uh, so it was uh, pretty, when it was rough, it was, uh, the ship used to move around a lot. So landing on the back of a ship like that is uh, quite challenging. Wildlife, uh, lots of nice pictures now, but obviously incredibly dangerous to a helicopter. Uh, this is a wandering albatross, uh, you know, a huge bird, six, seven, eight foot wingspan, you know, mate for life. Absolutely beautiful, but obviously don't mix very well uh, with helicopters. And uh, we would obviously have trying to avoid as many as possible. Uh, as if we were in formation with the other helicopter and the, and the helicopter in front of us hit this bird and they were very lucky to make it to some cliffs. Uh, while they were there though, the wind started picking up huge catapatic winds that build up, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 knots. And then a few, only a few minutes later, they can be up towards hundred knots of wind. So the helicopter almost started moving. They deemed the aircraft safe, took off, landed back on the ship. So that's them getting put away while I'm now waiting in this 80 knots of wind to land on the back of a ship. Uh, so pretty crazy conditions to operate and it can all go very wrong very quickly. Uh, this is a petrel. Uh, there's lots of them around the coast uh, and they're very aggressive birds as well. But Obviously, it sort of shows that, you know, you need a good windscreen and make sure you fly with your helmet and your visors down uh, with lots of birds around. This just shows the amount of birds in South Georgia. It's very difficult to see what this is, but as I get closer, uh, you will see, uh, start to make out that these are penguins, hundreds of thousands of penguins on St. Andrews Bay. Uh, I always put this picture up because he just looks like, you know, he's with his mates and he's, he's sort of wearing the wrong shirt. Uh, as a teenager, but he's a young penguin about to get rid of his down uh, and become an adult penguin. Uh, these are king penguins. Uh, again, king penguins. I've got lots of gratuitous pictures of penguins now. This is in the Falkland Islands. Uh, more king penguins. Uh, I was my my daughter was born while I was down uh, in Antarctica, and I used to take a little penguin uh, teddy bear with me, which is at the bottom here. And uh, that was a photo taken for her. And I used to fly with it as well. Unfortunately, its beak had a little bit of sort of metal wire in the front of it as well. And it 
wore a hole in the front of the windscreen. So it was actually quite an expensive penguin and I got into a little bit of trouble. This is a uh, emperor penguin uh, with their chicks, which obviously you can see look very different to the king penguin chicks. Uh, these are the biggest penguins. Uh, a gentoo penguin, a chinstrap penguin, and a daily penguin. I think that's a Magellan penguin. Uh, and I think these are rock hopper penguins. So incredible. And another teddy bear uh, that we took with us. Okay, uh, seals, there was lots of seals down there and uh, all looked very uh, tame seals and very beautiful seals, but they were, they were covering the beaches and you had uh, the bull seals for the elephant seals would get very territorial. So they would fight with each other uh, on the beaches, uh, which was pretty amazing to see, but also they'd get very territorial even with helicopters as well. Uh, there were leopard seals down there, which are very dangerous, especially for divers. Uh, and when I was not down there, but a few years before we were down there, uh, a diver was actually killed by a leopard seal. Uh, fur seals, there's millions of fur seals uh, in South Georgia on the beaches, and they have sort of taken over the food chain where the whales were. And these are incredibly territorial as well. And when we try and land on, they'd actually, you know, we'd try and land on a beach uh and they would actually be biting the tires of the helicopter all while there's birds huge birds with six foot wingspan flying around so very challenging conditions uh there's obviously no polar bears in uh in south uh in the southern seas uh but we took our own polar bear with us uh just to confuse things uh killer whales uh humpback whales we were lucky enough to be the first people to sort of film the humpback whales doing bubble net feeding which was shown on planet earth uh, this is them fluking here. Uh, one of the big dangers was disorientation. So uh, it was very challenging uh, flying over the sea, especially when there's a high pressure and very low winds. So uh, we had to be really careful uh, with disorientation. And this picture was taken while I was down there. Uh, it was even difficult to see which way around it should be. Uh, very still seas, whiteout conditions. Uh, and this is a photo taken 35 seconds before an incident that I'm about to show you, but very difficult to see which horizon to follow. Uh, unfortunately, the radar altimeter froze uh, in this uh, as they were descending slowly towards the sea, and only 30 seconds later, they crashed. Uh, luckily, uh, they were all survived and are back flying uh, uh, in various roles. Uh, but it shows sort of the dangers of operating over, you know, uh, low visibility and flat light condition, flat light conditions. Uh, and luckily, we had lots of science scientists on board. This happened a few years before I was on board, but they were able to use their 3D differential GPS and plot every single bit of debris for the uh, accident investigation. Uh, and then basically, this happened at Halley Eye Station here. So they had to get back to a hospital in South America. Uh, so they, uh, it took three days to come from Rothera on small planes to Halley and back again uh, up to a base here, C-130 to uh, South America to Patagonia and then a plane all the way up to Santiago. So three days to get the injured back, but luckily they're all, all fine now. Flying wasn't just whiteout, we'd have brownout conditions as well. It is a desert. Uh, this is landing on an area of incredible fossils. Uh, we had lots of ammonites, um, 
uh, that were all being studied, uh, looking at the KT boundary uh, and when the dinosaurs died. So uh, lots of uh, uh, ammonites that I was lucky enough to be able to collect. And just pictures of landing on some crazy places. So the tops of mountains in the snow, icebergs, edge of a lake, so it was the only safe place to put the tail rotor, the top of a uh, 3,000 foot sort of flat outcrop on a mountain. Uh, obviously the safest way was to dive off it. And then landing in the snow, which was uh, you know really difficult and challenging and had lots of dangers, especially for other people around the aircraft. You can see how close the tail rotor would get. Uh, people had to be really careful about standing up uh, and, and be as safe as possible around the aircraft. You can see here, this is a, a tall observer because he's got out and uh, the the snow, we haven't gone into the uh, snow yet. Oh, sorry, we have gone into snow. We sank into the snow and uh, you know he's standing on it. And obviously if it's the other way around and he sinks into the snow and we haven't, he uh, looks a lot smaller. So you could tell how deep the snow was by how tall the observer was when he got out. Landing on sloping ground, uh, again, very uh, dangerous. You're still flying the aircraft uh, when people obviously wouldn't be a good idea to walk up the hill. So obviously operating down the hill. And then you've got glaciers. You know, these glaciers have got huge fissures in them. This is, it's hard to see the scale. This is like 300 foot high. Um, which is, you know, huge dangers when you're flying over these, uh, if you did especially have a problem. Uh, they make for an amazing pictures, monographic pictures. Uh, landing on icebergs in this zero visibility, we would have, uh, we would basically use smoke, orange smoke, that would stain the snow and give us some definition and also give us an indication of the wind direction. Uh, Operating late at night because it doesn't go dark. So we were operating till 10, 11 o'clock at night, which was another danger. It would generally be very calm conditions. Uh, and obviously you've been working on a, a very long day and this is coming back to the ship, uh, you know, possibly 10, 11 o'clock, uh, 10 or 11 o'clock at night. So what happened to HMS Endurance? Unfortunately, a few years after I left in, uh, I think 2008 or 2009, uh, that a sea valve was uh, left open in the main engine room and the, the ship almost sank and had to be saved. Uh, and then it was taken back to the UK and it was never uh, actually fixed. Uh, and there's a great story uh, by the XO at the time, Tom Sharp, of the leadership and everything that required that was required so the ship didn't actually sink itself. It was taken over by HMS Protector, which is the current Royal Navy Ice Patrol vessel, but it doesn't have an organic helicopter capability, but they're doing a great job down in Antarctica and they'll be uh, sailing this September. Uh, the Everyone's heard of the boating at Boatface. Uh, that's for the uh, British Antarctic Survey, but it, it does have a name now. Uh, the RRS to David Attenborough and hopefully the ship will be sailing soon for its first voyage uh, to Antarctica and to the polar regions. So, I have uh, quickly gone through the history, the ship itself, the aircraft, the role. Hopefully uh, you see the multifaceted role of the Royal Navy down in Antarctica. Uh, talked about some of the challenges uh, that we have to come up against and uh, the future of uh, uh, Antarctic aviation. Unfortunately, the Wildcat helicopter isn't fitted at the moment to be an Antarctic helicopter. So there are no Royal Navy helicopters down in Antarctica uh, at the moment.
this slide just shows that you can still have fun down there and you're never too far away uh, to put your fancy dress on. I will just quickly, one more time, try and play a video. Okay, so you will just have to make your screens a little bit bigger.
Okay, so that's uh, me now complete. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Uh, apologize for some of the technical difficulties. Uh, who would agree to do a webinar? I can guarantee it went really well uh, during the practices. Uh, but thanks for listening. Uh, and I'm going to hand over to Simon. So he's going to field some of his questions. Lee, thank you so much for that. That was absolutely fascinating. Uh, clearly flying in some incredibly challenging environments. It's a shame that the thing that kept us on the edge of our seats this evening was the IT, but we overcame it in the end. We ran the videos. That's the important thing because yes. they are spectacular videos. Uh, we've been taking questions uh, during the presentation, so uh, we'll turn to those now. If anybody in the audience has further questions to ask, remember to go to the uh, chat box down the bottom of the um, of the GoToWebinar dialog box. So the first question I have this evening, actually, I, I, I will ask the first question, if I may. Of course. Um, so it does link into questions. We're all thinking the same things. Um, what was the ice protection? What were the ice protection measures, if anything, additional fitted to the aircraft? From my perspective, as you won't be surprised, you know, was did you feel there was a particular hindrance with the lack of rotorized protection? Uh, there was no other measures really fitted to the aircraft uh, apart from pitot heat and air you know anti-ice windscreen heat so there was anti-ice fitted to the actual uh, aircraft itself but but a restricted ice protection down to around minus eight uh not a full uh ice protection system so with no heated rotor blades no heated tail rotor blades just uh protection for the engines heater mats air and pitot heat so that did restrict us especially if we wanted to go imc uh, but obviously going IMC was particularly tricky there with the mountains. We only had our radar to be able to sort of find ourselves around on the ship's radar. Uh, and unfortunately, when you're looking for ships and there's a thousand ships out there because 90, 999 of them are painted white and icebergs and there's one of them that's red. Uh, so it was a pretty, we had some pretty hairy times finding the ship uh, when we did go IMC out there as well. Uh, but yes, icing, better icing, and the more modern icing system I've now seen on the Merlin would be a fantastic uh, facility to take take down to Antarctica. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, a, a general question I'm sure everybody is thinking is, is what was the most difficult part of those trips for you? Obviously, being away from home, uh, I think it's a great time to uh, thank my wife, uh, Andrea and kids, uh, because, uh, you know, I'd spent a hell of a long time away. Uh, and then all of a sudden I was in Antarctica. Fern, my first daughter, was born. I was luckily flown home for that a couple of weeks. But then I missed the first next five months of her life. Uh, so, yeah, it was difficult being away from home. Uh, and then just being, you know, staying safe whilst flying with no real rules and regulations that are down there, no air traffic control really, apart from on the ship, radio, communications. So, uh, you know, just staying inside your box, staying safe every day, uh, you know, and doing a lot of planning uh, as well. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, obviously nine months away is, is a long time as well, doing that twice, especially after spending a lot of time in away in hotter conditions. Indeed. Now, you mentioned the hotter conditions at the start. Uh, and a lot of people have been asking what you find are the more challenging conditions to fly the aircraft in those Gulf conditions you mentioned at the start or the Antarctica? Oh, the Gulf conditions, the hot heat and the higher density altitude is obviously a double negative for the engines and the rotors. They're all working harder. So you are, the aircraft is at its limit in the hotter conditions, whether you're landing on the back of a ship 
or uh, operating, uh, you know, over uh, overland. Uh, the aircraft likes being in those colder conditions better, so there's a lot more power uh, from the aircraft. But then you're in the conditions of the weather, you know, changing and the turbulence and the catabatic winds and the icebergs and the wildlife. So I'd say it's pretty even, but for very different, uh, very, very, very different reasons. Uh, and it was the aircraft didn't have any extra heating system. So, we, you know, we're in diving suits all day. You're in a diving suit for 10, 12 hours uh, with sat on a life raft. Uh, with your gloves on, you know, freezing cold. I only learned once to put my hand out the window uh, and see how cold it was without my gloves on. Uh, and luckily it didn't fall off. Excellent, pleased to hear that. Were you flying single pilot all the time? So it's a single pilot aircraft, but definitely not a single crew aircraft. So the observer who could be the uh, aircraft commander, they're in the left-hand seat and they're doing all the sort of navigation and a lot of the communications and updating the systems. They're also getting out and helping the scientists all the time. They're doing all the load lifting as well. Search and rescue, they man the uh, the winch. So it's a real team effort. Uh, single pilot, definitely, because there's no sticks in the left-hand seat at all, but definitely twin crew. Excellent. We saw ice accretion in some of those photographs. Did you suffer from rotor icing at all during any of your flying? Uh, when we landed back on, on a couple of sorties, we did have some rotor, rotor ice. It wasn't very often. Uh, we were trying to stay out of those conditions that would give the uh, rotor ice. Uh, I once forgot to put the pitot heat on and I did see, you know, a crazy ice formation on the pitot tubes. Uh, so, yeah, it definitely drills you to uh, making sure that you understand about icing and that you do your icing checks. Uh, and luckily, they were very light aircraft uh way away from their maximum all up mass so i think you know a heavier aircraft closer to its limits it would have affected it a lot more understood thank you uh in terms of uh operating the aircraft from the ship you mentioned an approach with 80 knots of wind i mean that's well outside of the normal envelopes that you're expecting to to to, to come back onto a ship were those procedures in place for you to understand how you were going to do that or was that practice that was passed down from others? Uh, not really, no. I mean, generally 50 knots was the limit from ahead uh, and you'd get a lot of turbulence and eddies uh, coming from the superstructure. Uh, but weirdly, that 80 knot wind was easier than many 40 knot winds from the port, from the port beam or from the starboard beam where the tail rotor is working a lot harder and you're getting turbulence from other things. So it wasn't as difficult. And because the wind was so strong, the ship was basically sat straight into it. Uh, and the sea state itself was pushed flat by the. So even though it's 80 knots of wind, it wasn't sea state 10. It was like flat calm because the wind had blown the waves flat. So on that one occasion, it actually wasn't that bad. A, a swell is much worse, you know, uh, when you've got a wind and a, and a swell and the ship moving around a lot as well. Indeed, and the ship did seem to be moving a lot, as you mentioned, to the keel design. Um, a, a practical question now: um, How did you get the resupply of a resupply of critical parts and spares uh, that you wouldn't normally carry on board the ship? Uh, we would have obviously a bigger critical list on the ship, so we would carry a lot more spares than normal, uh, including uh, spare engine and things, uh, spare rotor blades. Uh, that could all be changed by the whole team. So it's testament to the engineering team. They could change anything on the aircraft. Uh, 
but there was support from the UK and the air bridge that went to the Falklands was basically that. So we would have uh, supplies taken down uh, on the weekly flight. Uh, and then we would they would often be flown out to us by the uh, search and rescue helicopter uh, that was on the Falklands as well. Once we got within 100 miles, they could drop it off then we could fix the aircraft. It didn't happen very often, but and then we would generally go back after a month. Then the aircraft would go into deep maintenance. So the, the engineers had a tough job of clearing all the maintenance for like a lot of hours and a lot of time for then get back to the Falklands. As well, as I understand. Changing windscreens, unfortunately, yes. Did you have to pay for that, by the way, or should we should we move on? Yeah, you move on, yes. Understood. Um, okay, uh, there was one last question that I wanted to ask, that if you were, um, come the days when, when we are operating from down there again, perhaps with a Merlin, as, as some have suggested this evening, there was one piece of advice you'd pass on to those pilots what would that piece of advice be oh wow uh, uh have your kids before or after uh not during your deployment uh do lots of practice of snow landings and windy conditions go and operate in wales uh, or the alps before you go down there get your uh, definitely get your flying in mountainous conditions sorted get comfortable with deck landings uh, which generally most naval pilots are, and just integrate into the ship. It makes a much better atmosphere when the flight of fully integrated all the scientists and engineers and chefs, uh, navigators uh, on board the ship. So it's a real amazing camaraderie on the ship. And you meet some amazing people of all the scientists on board as well. So just, you know, and again, really enjoy it as well. Enjoy your time on there because even though it's a long, it's now, you know, 14 years ago uh, that I was on there, you know, it's still definitely my most memorable job in the Navy. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much again for that. Um, I'm going to have to start to draw things to a close now. Um, firstly, I'd like to uh, give the thanks to the Royal Aeronautical Society to, to Lee for presenting this evening under these challenging conditions. Uh, I'm sure I speak on behalf of um, not only the society, uh, but also the gathered audience when I say your lecture was extremely engaging. Um, thank you also to the audience for your participation during the question and answer session. I'm sorry we weren't able to get through all of the questions. There were some great questions there. Uh, I remind you again that there will be a video of this webinar, particularly if you've encountered difficulties uh, with following the presentation this evening. There will be a video that goes out in an email to you in three days time, as well as that certificate of attendance. At the close of the event this evening, there will be a survey pop up on everyone's screen. The Society asks that you take a few minutes to complete that in order that we can refine how such events are run and also to understand what other topics uh, you may wish to see at future again events. Uh, once again, I'd like to thank Lee for joining us and for sharing his work today. Uh, if you want to uh, continue the aerospace theme this evening, then after this, go to NASA TV. We have the first manned space flight from US soil since 2011. Um, which should be very exciting if they get off this evening. Again, they're, they're looking at weather. Uh, but from the Royal Aeronautical Society, we hope you found this evening's lecture engaging and hope that you will join us again. Enjoy the rest of your day and stay safe and well at home. Goodbye. Thank you.